Welcome everyone to the Hoops Habit Podcast for tonight, January 11th, 2015. That's our, our second show of the new year. Um, I'm Shane Young, your boy from HoopsHabit.com and BballBreakdown.com. And I'm joined by the great Ben Dowsett from BballBreakdown.com and uh, SaltCityHoops.com. And he writes for a plethora of other websites too, but most of his time has been taken up by Bball Breakdown. How you doing, man? I'm doing very well, Shane. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all, no problem. And, uh, you know, I mentioned Salt City Hoops. It's obviously the Utah Jazz affiliate with the ESPN's Troop Network. Um, how, how's it been going to cover games recently? Uh, it's been a really good time. I've been uh, I've been really thankful to, to Jonathan Reinhardt and the rest of Jazz PR for uh, for letting me come in and have a chance to uh, go to a couple games. Shout out Andy Larson, my uh, fearless editor-in-chief, uh, <laughs> managing editor, I should say, over at Salt City Hoops. Um yeah, it's been a really fun time. We've been to a few games these last couple of weeks, and uh, yeah, they're they're a great group of guys to talk to, both the Jazz and their coaching staff, and and the opponents we've had through. I've gotten some really fun quotes. Uh, best one I've had, honestly, was from Roy Hibbert the other night in the indie game. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, you went to see the my team, the pretty much the team that I cover, the Pacers. So um, I knew it was one of those games where Hibbert is once in every few months type of big performance. So I didn't know how that was. Seems to do it against the Jazz pretty well. That's a couple times this year he's had a really big game. Although I, they asked him about that, I was right there when he got asked about it after the game, and he just said it's luck. He said it had, at least according to him, it had nothing to do with any particular Jazz thing. Um, yeah, he took Gobert to town that night. Honestly, that was the best somebody's played against the most anybody's challenged Gobert really since he's been in the starting lineup and had this this recent run of his, and then had some really nice things to say about Gobert afterwards too, which was cool to see. Yeah, and I guess we'll just dive right into it because I, that's what I, that's what I was gonna say. That Hibbert pretty much said that he, he admitted that Gobert or Gobert was a lot better coming in than Hibbert was coming in. So. Yeah, um, you know that's it's it's the the best quote I've gotten so far in my young uh, reporting life at the Jazz games. He, uh, he he I asked him, you know, do you see any of yourself essentially in a in a young Rudy Gobert? You know, you were both when you entered the league, you were both powers, uh, both powers, I'm sorry, I'm hearing myself in the background here. <laughs> yeah, me too. Is that me or is that you? Yeah, and I guess we'll just dive right into it. Um, that is you, I think. What's going on here? <laughs> Alright, I got it. Sorry about that. You got it. No, we're good. No problem. I had the, uh, the I had the podcast up in a second, but uh, yeah, it's always yeah, no, he uh, basically asked him, you know, is it, it are there any similarities between the two of you guys? And and from you know, you both enter the league as defensive, strong defensive players, but who needed to work on offensive chops to have the the ability to not be a liability on the court and stay in the league. And before I could even get the question fully out, he said, no, he he's way better than I was at this age. He said he he mentioned lateral movement, he mentioned his his jumping ability and his ability to finish around the hoop, which is which is a real difference between the two. I mean, Hibbert isn't, even as he's developed in terms of a little bit more range with his jumper and some post moves and things like that, he hasn't become the sort of Tyson Chandler pick-and-roll dunking threat that can really suck a defense in, and Gobert's that already. And, yeah, you know, it's it's really exciting for Jazz fans uh, with Gobert specifically. Yeah, and, you know, being in this young career, it's kind of people, it's kind of like the Anthony Davis thing. People came into the season Knowing that Gobert was going to be good, I mean, they didn't know he was how good he was going to be. They just they knew there was room for improvement, and he showed that in the preseason. He showed that through everything. So it's like, what was funny was at the beginning of the year, actually back in the summer, I projected the Jazz at around 24, 25 wins, and then during the preseason, you know, they kind of lit it up, and 
they come in. They were and they were a team that I actually wrote about, a team that was surely going to pass their win total projection because I thought that people were really low on them in the summer, and then they showed a lot of people some great positives in the preseason. But now, you know, sitting at uh, the 13 and 25, um, where do you think? Do you think they've exceeded expectations, or do you think that it's still, you know, a wash for the season? I think it's pretty close. I mean, it depends whose expectations you're looking at because a lot, you know, that preseason that you talk about, they really did, I think, change a few people's expectations during that time. They they were a lot stronger during that period than people thought they were going to be, and even those of us who know that it's not smart to take too much from preseason play and things like that started to wonder whether or not this might be a possibility. And I, I even around Jazzland, I think you saw you saw win projections go a little up because of that from what they might have been. We, uh, I host a, a weekly radio show here locally uh, where we talk jazz, and we did, a, we did a preseason show where I believe I projected 30. Uh, Jody Genesey, who's the lo- one of the local beat writers for the, the Utah Jazz, he also projected 30, and then Andy Larson, our editor, projected, I think, 33, either 32 wow. or 33. Um, and I think they're probably going to come right around that 30-win mark if you had to if it gun to my head. I think there's still a lot that can happen. We've seen they've had already a bit of bad injury luck, although that happens to everybody. But, they've, you know, Alec Burks is out for the season. Rodney Hood's now had two injuries that have, in both cases, he's exceeded what was initially supposed to be the recovery time. He's, he's ended up yeah. being out a lot longer than we initially thought he was going to, which is a little bit worrying. You hope that he's not a, a fragile-type player already early on in his career. But... Yeah, I think they'll end up right around that 30-win mark. But you know, it's then this year, it's less about the wins and losses. And I think everyone, at least the majority of people in Utah, know that. You know, the Jazz have lost two straight. Their last two games <laughs> in Oklahoma City, but they played uh, maybe not as much against Houston. Houston, we were, they were tired. Second night of a back-to-back on the road. But I mean, they played. Oh, they probably should have won against Oklahoma City. They played them straight the entire game. The process really is what's there. Whereas last year, when they were losing. They were both losing, and you couldn't see where things were going. Yeah. And, and that's the difference, I think, this year. It's all about production, all about the process and uh, improvement this season. And the same thing with, like, I mean, the Pacers. You are you know that the Pacers with Paul George were supposed to be a top, you know, one of the top teams in the East, just, just one of them, one of that magic five that there is right now. And, you know, without them, it's just all about seeing what else is on the roster. I guess that's what Utah is trying to do. You know, got Joe Inglis or whatever. And Jingles, and, Jingles. We call him Jingles. It's easier. <laughs> Jingles is a lot easier, man. I watched him play the other night against the Pacers. It, it's just, it's hilarious to me. He's a um, really interesting player. He's, you know, he's got, he's, he's smart and he's got that sort of European style of playing basketball where he, he can really rotate the ball well and things like that. But he is just petrified to shoot the basketball. From anywhere, the I think the I think Zach Lowe noted in one of his pieces that the guy leads the league already in fast breaks where he could just take a wide open layup, but instead <laughs> throws the ball backwards into traffic into a you know to Dante Exum so he can get swatted by KJ McDaniel's on the chase down. Like he's done that like four times already. He and and it for a winning team. I'm not sure how involved a guy like Ingles would be if that you know if this Jazz team was maybe another year or two down their developmental curve. I'm not sure whether or not he'd have a place. He's he can't shoot the ball quite well enough to space. Yeah, it. you actually you actually love that. You actually value guys that are unselfish like that and that would rather have someone else to take the shot. But at some point in time, you want someone to improve their production and prove that they can do something. Yeah, and it, and it's just about killing the offense. If a team knows that when they find Ingles. <laughs> wide open in the corner that if you just do a reasonable closeout on him, he's not going to take the shot. 
that's a that's a big that's a huge advantage for any good defense knowing that they can essentially play five on four defense a lot of the time with that kind of knowledge in hand. And the the I think shooting is one thing that the Jazz are still. That's something they're going to have to address over the next couple off seasons before they hopefully get back to contender status in the next couple of years. Is they need a little bit more shooting from the wings. Gordon Hayward's great, obviously, but beyond him, they need a, a few more guys. And we're and they're hoping that Rodney Hood, once he's healthy, will be that kind of a guy as well. Yeah, I think someone like a Jody Meeks. I, I would love to see someone like that there. It's just they don't have that. And another guy that you said, um, or another thing that you said about the Jazz, it's it's all about seeing what there is. You said that last year, although they were, they were losing, you never did really see any silver lining. And yeah, I got some... a lot of that had to do with, you know, Ty Corbin was in his last year there. Oh. There were a lot of concerns that he cared a little bit more about his win-loss record so as to improve his next job posting rather than caring about developing the Jazz. Oh, yeah. And now you've got a guy in Quinn Snyder who's on board for the long haul. He knows he's not going anywhere. He knows that if the Jazz lose games because he's trying something this year, he's not going to get in trouble for it. It's not going to hurt his stock or anything like that. And I, we've seen big changes. You know, last year we saw Richard Jefferson getting minutes over Alec Burks, for example, which is just silly from every possible perspective. Like, there, there's really no reason for that to be happening. And a number of things like that. We couldn't see Favors and Gobert together, or excuse, excuse me, Favors and Cancer together enough, which is still a, a thing. We need to find out kind of what Cancer can be. He's got a, a possibly complex restricted free agency approaching this summer. A lot of moving pieces for the Jazz team, but it's also the most fun it's been in a few years. Yeah, is that actually brought fun back to the city, and you know, for someone that has wanted to see the Jazz improve since the Darren Williams, Carlos Boozer, you know, West second round days. That's the furthest they've got. I mean, you, you just want something. You want something that's positive out of that city, and something that I was thinking about, like Trey Burke. He's still shooting below forty percent. He's still struggling. He's played thirty-seven games this year, so he, he, it ain't like it's you know injuries are holding him back. I mean, he's just not finding a rhythm. What is your diagnosis on Burke as a player now that he has a season and a half? You know, he, he's a huge hot-button topic as well. I wrote a piece last week on Salt City Hoops about him. He's in this recent run of Jazz success. He had one massive major stinker against the Hawks where he went two for 19. Really bad night. Other than that, though, honestly, he's actually begun to find his stride a little bit more recently. The the shooting is certainly, I think, the largest concern and and simply the same sort of the same as Ingles just that that I mean he's far more willing than Ingles is that's that's not a problem with Trey he's definitely willing to launch the ball up but the the idea that with that defenses can occasionally and and are occasionally daring him to shoot knowing that especially from the mid-range areas knowing that it's not the most efficient <clears throat> shot the Jazz can get off and those continue to be issues, but at the same time, we see small strides of progress, and we see both he and I think he's a microcosm for the Jazz in this sense that we've seen the entire team start to, earlier in the year, they were having a, a myriad of issues, and a, a large group of us were saying, we've got to wait, we've got to let Quinn Snyder's process take hold, this is a new coach. This this stuff this type of stuff just doesn't happen overnight, and I think we've we've started to see the the littlest signs of that recently over the last I think they're seven and six over their last thirteen, and during that period Burke's been passable. He's certainly no all star or anything like that, but he's he's a little more selective with his shots. He's been a little bit more divisive in the pick and roll, not as much meaningless dribbling, a lot more decisive getting places that are making the defense do things and rotate in, into areas that make them uncomfortable, simple things like that. Again, it's not high-level stuff, but the most you can ask for at the moment is little bits of progression from them, and I, I do think we're seeing it to a point. 
Yeah, something last year after the All Star break is when I thought he, you know, kind of turned it on. I mean, that's when he kind of found something. I compared him and uh, Michael Carter Williams' numbers after the All Star break, pretty pretty similar, pretty pretty much the same thing after the All Star break. And um, I'm just I just hope he turns on the Jets and can get something going because I mean, although it's not for the win totals, they're not going to make playoffs. It's nothing like that. It's it's something to where people think this is our franchise player. He needs to start, you know, kind of transforming to that franchise player. I mean, Michael Carter Williams and that draft Michael Carter Williams was the, uh, you know, we don't know if he's going to be Philly's player for the long haul. But, you know, in that rookie of the year season, had, you know, all across the board, great numbers. So I, I just think that Utah fans would like to see something like that from him. Well, and there's, you know, there's certainly been added pressure now that they did draft Dante Exum in this previous yeah. year's draft, and and I think the thought from a lot of people is that he's really going to be the guy for the future in a couple of years. A lot of questions about whether or not they might be able to play the two together, whether a natural starter and bench player sort of di dichotomy ends up revealing itself there over the next couple of years. Um, and, and I think that's what maybe makes some of the noise about Trey a little bit louder, is that, you know, if he was the only guy in town, then that would kind of just be it. Yeah. You know, at him for the future, but with Exum. And Exum has, in certain areas, already been a, a little bit more than what we expected from him, particularly shooting the ball and defensively. Um, he's been, Exum has been quite a pleasant surprise. So I think that's that's some of what is, is kind of breathing heat down Trey's neck a little bit. But to his credit... He, and this is something I've, I've learned expressly recently as I've talked to him in person, is he's he's extremely self-aware. This isn't one of those sort of selfish type of players who think, you know, who wants to put his troubles on other people and wants yeah. to make excuses. And, he, and He owns up to it. Sorry? He owns up to what exactly. he needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he knows that he's had issues in these certain areas. He knows he's had issues defensively. He knows he's – I think he really knows that because he's not – super tall or super, super fast, that he's going to have defensive issues probably his entire career. It's going to be a struggle for him. He knows he has to work. And his coach also is extremely aware on this. Every time we try and ask Quinn Snyder about <laughs> coach, about his shooting or something like that, Quinn always tries to divert the question back to his defense. Quinn wow. says, you know what, the shots are going to come. If he, The first thing I care about with him is that he defends on the ball. That's that, and that's uh, he said that to me three or four different times. Yeah, because in the West, if you don't depend on the ball, if you let point guards run across you, you're going to lose like every single time. It doesn't matter who you play in the West, you're going to go against the top point guard. That's just how it is. And with Rondo coming over from Dallas or from uh, Boston to Dallas, it's just getting more point guard heavy. And yeah. you know. It's, there's a lot of them, and it's been and he's yeah. That's the good thing though is that he gets run through a gamut every night, and he's he know there's no nights off for him, and he knows that. Yeah, and it's it's actually a good segue because it's getting to the point where point guards are actually going to be infesting the uh, the MVP discussions. And you know, I've seen that you have in your recent B-Ball Breakdown piece with uh, your MVP gauntlet pretty much. It was talking about how you would rank your top five MVPs, and three of them were point guards. And you know, one of them played a little bit of point guard in OKC. So um, I, I guess I'll, just, I'll go ahead and go through the for the audience, go through your top five. At five, you had Chris Paul. At four, you had Anthony Davis. Three, Damian Lillard. Two, James Harden. And number one, obviously, the I mean, you said that you hate the logic, best player on the best team, but Steph Curry. So pretty much where is the area that people had the biggest problem in there? What do you think was the biggest problem? Um, And uh, by far, I would say the inclusion of Chris Paul at number five. 
And and I will say, I will preface this, and really the whole piece, if you do check it out on B-Ball Breakdown, I feel like Curry, I think most would agree at the moment that Curry is the MVP. Um, and I like I said, like I do say in the article, I, I don't like the you know best player on the best team has to win the award necessarily, but the logic does lend itself to the <laughs> fact that sometimes that's going to happen because basketball teams tend to be good because of the good players they have. Um, yeah, you said that if it was like the Spurs, you can't say the MVP of the whole league is like Tim Duncan or you know yeah, Kawhi Leonard. You just can't exactly. do that. There's plenty of examples where that's not going to be the case. In this case, though, it does just happen to work out that his team is the best team and he's been the best player so far. And and in my personal opinion, I do think Harden is a pretty clear two at the moment, which I yeah. I hate having to say it. He's I say it in the piece. He's not, I find his game the most aesthetically displeasing of any player in the league. Ooh. I really don't enjoy watching him. But I do think he's contributed the second most value to a team that would just be nowhere without him. Like, that would be a lottery team if James Harden were to have torn his ACL at the start of the season or something. But after those two guys, the next three spots I really think could have been inhabited by about eight or nine, even ten players. <laughs> and I really don't – I yeah, you're almost splitting hairs in, in deciding between those guys. And I don't even really – like, Kyle Lowry I think is the, the one I've heard the most frequently – and I would have had no problem whatsoever with Lowry at five instead of Chris Paul. Half the reason I put Chris Paul there in the first place is because I think some of these guys, Lowry is one, uh, Jimmy Butler is another, John Wall is another. I think they get talked about already, kind of, and yeah. I actually think that, that Chris Paul... And Marcus Saul is another. And Marcus Saul, uh, too, yeah, he's another that, that was really hard to exclude there. Um, I, I think that those guys, the, the reason I put Chris Paul, Chris in over those guys is just because I actually think that there's been less conversation about Chris, and I wanted to just kind of bring him to the light a little bit <laughs> and show people, like, hey, I think it's a little bit of a... Of a uh, Boy Who Cried Wolf is all is the best I can think of. That's not the right metaphor, but he's... We're so used to this. We see this yeah. every year. Every year he's awesome in the regular season, and then, you know, he's made one... Con what, one conference finals? No finals? Something like that. No, no this, conference finals, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, right, okay. But, I mean, this isn't a playoff award. This is only a regular season award, and this also isn't a, you know, get tired of what's happened over the last 10 years award. This is this year only. <laughs> and this year only, Chris Paul has been incredible. Blake Griffin's having a down year, and those guys' mm -hmm. bench is, is basically high schoolers. Like, their bench is really, really bad. It's terrible. And he's completely supported that team. Did you know that when he's on the court, Los Angeles' offense is better than Golden State's offense when Steph's on the court. See, that's unreal because I didn't know that because I thought Steph Curry had the best um, you know, net rating of like plus 18 and a half whenever he does, he's on the court. He does have the best net rating, but just offensively. If you just go okay. offense, the I think it's like 115 for the Clippers with Chris on the court, and it's like 113 with the, with the Warriors with Steph on wow. the court. Which is, I mean, and then the Clippers, when he sits – it just falls off a cliff, and they're like one of the worst offenses in the league when Chris sits down. And I, I kind of just wanted to highlight it again. I wouldn't have a problem putting Gasol ahead of him. Wouldn't have a problem putting uh, yeah. Kyle Lowry ahead of him. I wouldn't even necessarily have a problem putting maybe a Jimmy Butler or a John Wall type ahead of him, although I'm not as sure about those two as surefire MVP candidates. Um, but, yeah, that was – if you, to go back to your original question about the, the most flack I've received, I would say, would be for that one uh, – because a lot of people, a lot of people have just heard this story with with Chris Paul, and they want to hear something new, and that's common. Yeah, and you know, Chris Paul, I believe he is twenty nine, about to be thirty, or it could yeah. be thirty, about to be thirty one. I mean, it's time. It, it is time that he does something to, you know, kind of flare the Clippers into that play, that 
championship contention. Last year they kind of they were. I mean, they're they're a championship contender. I would say. I, I believe the Spurs, Thunder, Clippers. I think those are the contenders last year. But now, as the West, the one through eight is getting tougher, and you don't know who's going to make the seventh and eighth spots right there. I think the Spurs and the Suns currently own them, but it, it's the point where the Clippers really can't lose that many games, and he hasn't. He's been kicking it in gear, and yeah. you know they're they're dominant home team, and on the road they're they kind of slipped up a little bit, but they're getting better, and I think it's because of him. I worry a bit about their the that they have some underlying signs that are going on there that are a bit worrying. I mentioned the bench just a second ago. I mean, yeah. Doc Rivers has really done. GM Doc Rivers has really done no favors to Chris and, and Blake by, by the moves that he's made over this summer and last summer. They really boxed themselves into a corner with that Spencer Hawes deal. Spencer Hawes yeah. hasn't ended up being worth using the mid-level exception, which hard caps you. For those who, who don't know how that works, that's one of the only ways under the current CBA that you can hard cap yourself and actually get a figure that you cannot go over. That's so that apron figure that's about $4 million over the luxury tax line. They've done that with the Spencer Hawes deal and all for a guy who's, you know, barely in league average third big man at the moment. They've, their wing depth has been really bad. Like we saw the trade rumors, they're trying to bring Austin Rivers over. When oh. you're pinning some of your wing depth hopes on bringing Austin Rivers over and, you know, the best wing defenders that you've got on your team really are, are Jamal Crawford and J.J. Redick. It's, it's not necessarily a good situation. I, I'm actually a little worried that unless Doc can pull some magic out of his GM hat here before the trade deadline... I'm worried when they get a, a strong Western Conference opponent in the first round of the playoffs who's scouting their top players really, really hard, that they're not going to be able to handle it. And I, I actually am kind of looking forward to betting against them in the first round of this game <laughs> if they don't make any big changes to their roster. Yeah, and the funny thing is that they were not that cl- they were not that far away from going out in the first round last year. So, I mean, it wouldn't be a big big shock, I mean, if you consider in that in that sense. But... For people that believe this is, you know, L.A. is the Clippers' town now, then yeah, it would be a shock because you, you would think any L.A. team is not going to knock out in the first round if they make the playoffs. But, um, you know, I would say about the Clippers that GM Doc has not done a great job, but I think that Coach Doc, the, the number one thing that he wanted when he came over, he said, this is not going to be Lob City. We're going to transform this offense. He's done that. And the second thing, he wanted a good defense. He's, he's not getting balanced right now. If you think about like the top contenders in the league, out of the last 25 years, I wrote about it the other day or last week, 19 of the last 25 winners have been top 10 in both, defensive rating, offensive rating. It's like they're not that because they don't they can't defend as good as you know Memphis, Golden State, Atlanta somehow, a, you know, a great defensive team. I mean, there's not going to be a top 10 in both, and I don't know if that's a good formula going into the playoffs where you said that guys are going to be a lot more scouty. They're, they're going to scout a lot more. And you're gonna have guys that are gonna figure out how to stop the pick and roll a little bit, primarily because DeAndre Jordan still hasn't transformed his offensive game as much as we would like. So it's gonna be really tough. And the fact that you still cannot leave DeAndre Jordan out on the floor in late closings of the game because his free throw shooting is still not above where it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'd agree that Coach Doc has, been, you know, he's he remains one of the five best coaches in the league, no question. His especially his offensive systems are excellent. Um, that that whole deal, but really. He only has GM Doc to thank for the fact that, that his team isn't really one that I, I, I don't, as currently constructed, I don't know how this team becomes a top 10 defensive team. I, I, I don't see it. You're playing 
at least one defensive minus on the wings at all times, if not two. That's not really some. I mean, Barnes has been nice, and Barnes has come along as the season's gone on, but he can't be on the floor all the time. And even if he can, he's, he's aging a little bit. When you get into the playoffs, he's going to be a, a kind of a tough guy to rely on for 30-plus minutes a night at really high levels of basketball. I just worry about the deep, the depth of their personnel and that, you know, if, if a team can, can lock up Chris and can lock up Blake to a certain point, I wonder where they're going to be able to look and I wonder whether they're going to be able to stop a high-functioning Western offense for, you know, 48 minutes of time in the playoffs. Yeah, and it's going to be – the West playoffs might be better than last year, and I don't think that's humanly possible. I mean, you have to – it'd be it'd be a record. It's going to – game seven all the way through. I, I just don't see how – the, any of these teams are really that much better than the other. I mean, it's just you can argue like the Warriors a lot much better than like the Suns or something. But other than that, you're looking at teams that you can legitimately say can win that series in, in any first round series. There, even with the Thunder creeping his eighth spot. I can't wait for the first round of the playoffs in the West. <laughs> and even though in the East, I mean, that's one thing I want to close this thing with. I want a little bit of opinion on the Cavaliers because they are losing to the Kings right now. I believe the game's over. They're yeah. Either yeah, sixth straight loss, fifth straight loss, sixth straight loss. Fifth but, or something, but yeah, it's bad. Yeah, so where do you think they are when LeBron comes back? And that's supposed to be in the next you know, week or so. Where do you think I they think, are? I think he might even play in the next game from what I was reading some stuff today. Um, I, I wish I had a for sure answer for you there. I don't, to be honest. Now, I have, I have some thoughts. I, I do think that... We're going to have to give it more time. Like I think people are going to expect that we're going to know the answer to that question within the first week of LeBron being back, and that's just not going to be the case. They still have to integrate a couple more pieces, that, that the pieces they just brought in, in Mozgov and Shumpert specifically, who are potentially going to be really important members of their team down the stretch run at the end of the year. That's going to take some time, but to me, the, the biggest factor, and it sounds kind of generic and simple because it is, is, is whether LeBron was truly playing at the level he was. Now, I mean, LeBron's been great. That People don't want to know. He's, yeah. I think he's putting up like a 25-8-5 on not his usual like 57% shooting. And, and people are freaking out. So it's Yeah, bad. and everyone's freaking out. And, and I agree that actually defensively they maybe have a right to. He's been terrible defensively. He's been really unfocused. Sometimes he just doesn't run. Like he just watches his guy cut mm -hmm. right behind him and things like that. The real question is whether that's just him – uh, whether that's a combination of the in, the little maladies and injuries that he had that caused him to sit out for a couple weeks and or a bit of, you know, laziness and the amount of basketball he's played over the last several years and all that kind of catching up to him and whether when it comes down to it, that kind of stuff is going to go away and we're going to see the LeBron we've seen in previous years or whether he we really have seen the end of LeBron James's peak. And if the latter is the case then, of course, yeah, I'm, I'm hugely worried about the Cavaliers because Kevin Love has been mediocre, I think. At, I mean, he's been better than people are giving him credit for, especially because yeah. they're, I don't think they're using him very well at all. But he hasn't been necessarily what was expected, and we've seen while LeBron's been out that he and Kyrie haven't been enough to carry things by themselves. And if LeBron is merely a great player when he comes back rather than the transcendent player that we know him, yeah. Not even just when he comes back, but more specifically around playoff time, and because they're not going to miss the playoffs, it's basically impossible uh, in that huh. conference. But he's—if we're not seeing the type of—I really think they need maybe not even last year's LeBron, maybe the year before that LeBron from the from the last Miami title team to to have a shot at being the Eastern Conference representative in the finals, like many had thought was 
almost a foregone conclusion because the East, first of all, is better than we thought it was going to be. There's a couple better teams in there than we were expecting. Yeah. They're going to have to play probably two solid teams consecutively to make the finals. If LeBron's not superhuman, I'm just not sure it can happen with the rest of that team they've got, not this year at least. Yeah, and you've got to figure out what to do about David Blatt. Give him the confidence like uh, Griff David Griffin has done. He said we're not doing anything wrong, or you know, kind of silence the media hype because everyone and their mother thinks that he's going, he's leaving, or you know, he's getting fired. Everyone thinks that he's gone, and I'm just not so sure that they would put all of their stock on him before, you know, before this, before LeBron, all that, um, you know, hype came along, before he even signed with Cleveland, Blatt was the coach. So it's, you know, I just feel like they had an idea that, that LeBron was going to come, and they hired him anyway. So. Yeah, I just stick with them until this year. Make a decision after the year and around July. Yeah, and you know that goes back to you can you really do even you know they got the luckiest of all luck over the summer when LeBron decided to come back, and in a way that's kind of not to smart people, but to some people that's overshadowed the fact that you know this team hasn't been well managed. It's been in in fact it's been badly managed. The 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 and the theme that you just spoke to is is one that kind of illustrates it to me. If they had any any idea whatsoever that LeBron might be coming back to Cleveland, if they even had an inkling or a yeah. thought, I think the idea that they would go out and hire a coach before knowing any of that, before maybe potentially consulting LeBron and things like that, I think that is absolutely silly. I think the number of first-round picks they've traded in the last several oh. years is absolutely silly. I, I I just think they've, you know, there's a reason the guy left in the first place, and him coming home is a great story and everything like that, but part of the reason he left in the first place was because they just could not put a real team around him, and it, they've done better this time. You know, Kyrie is a, is a real pro, a real good player, and Kevin Love, you know, that that had all the makings and, and still could work out very well. We can't yeah pass full judgment on it just yet, but I worry with Blatt that, yeah, that maybe they have boxed themselves into a situation where maybe he's not the right guy, but you can't it, you can't put the egg on your face of firing a guy like that halfway through a season. I mean, the hot takes would, would just burn. <laughs> it would be really bad, and, and beyond that, there's just, there's really no precedent for that sort of thing. And and I'm not saying he's necessarily wrong. We with everyone and their mother, as you, you used that phrase earlier, has talks about how Blatt in Europe and his previous teams have always taken time to come around. They've always been slow yeah. starters. Takes time for his systems to come into play. But what we've seen so far, I just don't. Especially in terms of how they've used Love, I haven't been very impressed. They I I don't know that they're necessarily maximizing the talent on their roster on either end of the court. And, you know, it's no reason. People need to completely calm down and, and kind of, like, buy in to give Cleveland time because when LeBron came to Miami, Bosch was okay, Bosch was still young, and Wade was – he was getting he was getting to that point where, you know, you, you figure something could happen. He was turning 30. So now Kyrie Irving's 22, 22 years old. That's still mind-blowing to me. He's 22. I, he's already a top-ten point guard or, you know, a top – higher than that. But – and Kevin Love, if they if they lock him down, he'll be locked up for a for a deal, a five year deal. Kyrie Irving's locked up for a five or four year deal. So it's not like something bad can happen. I mean, they're going to be together for a long time if LeBron, you know, commits to Cleveland this summer, which everyone and everyone believes it's it's going to happen. He's not going to bounce. I don't think he would do something like that. Maybe you think he would. I, I just don't think he would do something like that that would completely ruin his image. 
I don't think that he would. I think the bigger concern there is love. I, I think there's, yeah. you know, we all know what the guarantees made during the nice everybody smiling time is right after the trade <laughs> was made in the first place, and he's happy then to say, yeah, I'm going to commit long term and no problem and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, the body language for him hasn't been particularly good, and I think I, I think there is a bit of an issue in comparing this team with LeBron's Heat, even those even that first year. And the biggest difference is that that Heat team, even when, you know they they started nine and eight and that whole thing that everyone likes to bring up and whatnot. But that the difference between that team and this Cavaliers team is that that team could defend from the start. They had their issues together with Wade and LeBron in terms of taking turns offensively, and they didn't really figure out their flow on offense for I mean probably not until the playoffs that year even. Yeah. But, the, the defense was there immediately, and you knew it wasn't a problem, and the, the, the Cavaliers' defense has been an absolute <laughs> And you're, you're better off. You're better off being a top-five um, defensive team and maybe like a subpar 13th or 14th offensive team than the other way around. Yeah, yeah, because the, you're going to come into the playoffs and there's going to be periods where the shots don't fall, and if you can't get stops on the other end of the court, then that's, that's really going to be a big problem yeah. for you, and I think... The, the Cavaliers just don't have that. We're hoping they're well. They're hoping that is that Mozgov is going to really kind of impact things on the defensive end, specifically as a rim protector. I'm hoping, and this is that something that uh, Seth Partnow over at uh, B-Ball Breakdown and a number of other sites as well, uh, I believe, wrote about was that uh, hopefully bringing Mozgov in will f almost force Blatt to begin, at least when Mozgov's on the court, playing a more conservative defensive strategy against pick-and-rolls. They've been trying to have their centers and their bigs leap out 25 feet away from the hoop to contain pick-and-rolls, which just, quite frankly, for the players they have and for the level of effort their players seem to be willing to put in at the moment is not going to be a system that's going to work. It's a really high-intensity system. Yeah. Miami could only make it work with supremely high levels of effort and ridiculous long athletes, which Cleveland doesn't have as much as what as as Miami had when LeBron was over there. Hopefully, Mozgov will allow them or force Blatt to kind of tone things back a little bit defensively. They might be able to get themselves a little bit under control and, who knows, maybe even save a little energy for the other end by playing a less labor-intensive defense. Yeah, and, you know, the thing about having your base come out on those screen rolls, you have to have two things. You have to have speed and you have to have good rotations. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure Cleveland has any, either one of those things other than, you know, the, the Kyrie Irving and LeBron. I'm not sure if they have that. Yeah, and like I said, LeBron's been, you know, who knows who this will be in the playoffs, but he takes lots of defensive possessions off these days. <laughs> you can tell that the minutes from the last four or five years have really started to catch up to him, and you have to hope that, I hope, LeBron's been my favorite athlete for like 10 years, so I'm really yeah. hoping that that's just a temporary thing that's going to go away in the playoffs, but uh, you wonder whether it's the case, and you the, the, the problem is that they've just got so many questions, and it's totally conceivable that all of these questions get answered in a positive way, and that we're sitting here three months from now being like, why were we ever doubting these guys in the first place? But the sheer number of questions that there are makes that kind of an unlikely scenario. It's just, it's not necessarily too easy to fix all the problems they have in such a short period of time, regardless of how high your talent level is. Yeah, and one thing we can agree on before we uh, before we head off here is that they're um, they're in that mix, or at the bottom of that mix of the five teams. I think. I mean, you know, Washington Wizards, the Raptors. I the Hawks they're they're magical. The Hawks are magical this year, and I, they're just below those teams and the Bulls. So we'll see if they catapult up to the top for the regular season ends, which will be about mid-April. But uh, 
That's I not think it's impossible at this point. <laughs> uh, I think the five is almost as high as they can go unless one of those teams sustains a major injury, and they're even in a fight for the five right now with uh, Milwaukee. Oh, and, oh man, which is crazy. I mean, the, 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 they're 500 now. The Cavaliers are 19 yeah. and 19 after the blowout tonight against Sacramento. Like that's, it's worrying. That's a lot of ground to make up. Now it is the East. It's it's easier to make up that ground than it would be if they were in the West. In which case, they wouldn't even be in the playoffs right now. Oh. But uh, I think they're gonna be. They're gotta gonna have to start planning right now for if they make it past the first round or possibly even in the first round. They're gonna have to be playing on the road. Yeah, and. Uh, it's going to be the best second half of the regular season I've ever witnessed. But uh, it was nice seeing you on this podcast today. And uh, how was that Broncos loss, man? Like, you're, you're a beloved Broncos fan. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Broncos fan. I lived in Denver for a year when I went to Denver University my freshman year. And, uh, oh, that's I, – I hate to say it, but it looks like my man Peyton might uh, might finally have run out of gas in the tank. He missed – he probably missed ten throws that you would expect him to make just in tonight's game which could have been the difference. They didn't lose by that much. Like that, yeah, the whole thing didn't look too good. I think there might be some big changes coming in the offseason. Yeah, hopefully they're hopefully they can stay within contention. I mean, if you're if you're in there, you're in contention. But um, yeah, I mean, my team got knocked out as well, the Dallas Cowboys. So it's been ah. a bad been a bad day. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> I look forward to having you on in the next week or so, or next coming weeks. Be fun. Definitely, yeah. Thanks a lot for having me on, Shane. See you, man.